today, but we want to use tonight's scripture reading for this morning. <laughs> All right, John uh, chapter 4, verse 24. Is that the topic we're going with? Beautiful. <laughs> John chapter 4, verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Lord's Day, but if you will indulge me for just a few brief minutes in the introduction to say some things on a personal note. From my family, from my wife and kids, we are so glad to be with you guys, to see y'all, to worship the Lord with you today. It brings joy to our heart to be able to serve God and sing His praises with you at this time. We're so thankful for that. People that we haven't seen for a while, people that we haven't got to visit with, it's a reminder of what heaven will be like. Seeing people who you haven't seen in a while, who you haven't got to fellowship with in a while, to be able to worship and praise God together for eternity. We're grateful for that opportunity this morning. In regards to the sermon this morning, I guess I could have said, see Terry's call to worship and see Thomas's Lord's Supper meditation and I could have sat down. Because that would have covered it, but I can't do that. And instead, we've got nine points that we're going to look at this morning, so if I can quote Mike Vestal, whose shoes I will not be able to fill, nor will I try, fasten your safety belts and put on your crash helmets because we're going to be moving this morning. I also didn't want to give Troy a scripture reading because it's nine verses. John 4 and verse 24 sums up our text very well. But we're going to be studying a text from the Lord's Word today, and we're going to allow each verse to make our points. There's a poem that was written by a lady named Elizabeth Barrett Browning. The title of this poem is Sonnet 43. Some of you may know this. It has a very common, a very well-known first line. Even if you're not familiar with Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Sonnet 43, you know this line. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Now I understand that that poem was written from a human being's perspective, flesh and blood, and it's referencing physical love, the love one human being has for another human being. But, Miss Browning in Sonnet 43 poses a question that is incredibly relevant to each and every one of us today as Christians. When we worship... When we come together in an assembled capacity to worship God in spirit and in truth, John chapter 4 and verse 24, we are in essence saying to God, I love you. When we worship, we are honoring, we are revering the Lord of all heaven and all earth. When we worship, we are bowing before a God who is greater, who is mightier, who is above all that we can ask or imagine, that we can even think. Worship on earth is the closest thing to heaven. Worship on earth is the closest thing to heaven. 
It's our taste of heaven on earth. This is what we're going to be doing for all eternity whenever we get to heaven with the Father and with Christ Jesus and with the saints who have lived throughout all time. We will be worshiping. But, there's always a but, isn't there? But, sometimes on earth, our worship feels a little bit hollow. Sometimes on earth, our worship is similar to the prepackaged communion wafer. It is just a touch stale. What can we do to remedy this? How can we fix this? Because spirit and in truth worship, John 4.24, is not hollow. It is not stale. There is some substance, some feeling behind that. What can I do as a Christian whenever my worship feels like it's becoming hollow and stale? And make no mistake about it, even the best of us, quote unquote, will experience this from time to time in our lives. In our time together this morning, open your Bibles with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. 1 Chronicles chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 23 through 31. You're welcome, Troy, for not making this the scripture reading. 1 Chronicles 16, 23 through 31. Let's read the text together, and then we're going to go back through verse by verse. And we are going to look at and hopefully answer the question, why do I worship? Let me count the ways if we can modify Miss Browning's statement. 1 Chronicles 16, 23 through 31, it reads, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good news of His salvation from day to day. Tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. Ascribe to the Lord, you families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Tremble before Him all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Let the heavens be joyful. Let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. The verses of this great chapter will form our points this morning. Look at verse 23 with me. Allow me to read that one more time. We covered a lot of ground there. Look at verse 23. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim good news of His salvation. I encourage you to go back and further detail this text. We cannot do justice in answering the question, Why do I worship in such a great and glorious passage? Nine verses in only 30 or so minutes. Go back and study it. Dig. Diligently look at this passage. We're just going to look at one concept from each verse. Verse 23, Why do I worship? Because of His salvation. Because of his salvation, I'd underline that or mark it in your tablet or Bible, whatever you use to study. His salvation is my motivation. 
The salvation of God is the motivation that I have as a Christian, as a child of God, to worship Him. His salvation is why I can sing His praise, as the verse says. His salvation is why I can proclaim the good news of His salvation from day to day to everybody. It's my motivation. The Greek word translated salvation in the New Testament means saving preservation, deliverance, Spiritual and eternal. The word salvation is found in Scripture, if you use the ESV translation of the Bible, 173 times. It's a key concept. The beginning of God's Word tells us something about His salvation. Keep your finger here in 1 Chronicles 16 and go to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49 verse 18. Genesis 49:18 says, "I wait for your salvation, O Lord." The beginning of the Bible says something about the salvation of God. This is Jacob as he's blessing the tribe of Dan. He is in essence saying, "I look forward to your salvation, O Lord. I'm waiting for it. It's not here yet, but I'm looking for it. It's coming." We've got a complete picture as New Testament Christians living on this side of the cross of Calvary. We see and we live the salvation of the Lord that Jacob was waiting for. We've got it. But, ultimately, that salvation is still yet to be. Christians are saved, but ultimately the day of judgment has not occurred yet. The ultimate and final salvation of the Lord has not yet happened. So we as Christians can echo the sentiment given to us by Jacob in Genesis 49, 18. And we can say to God whenever we worship, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. The end of the Bible. We've looked at Genesis, now go all the way to the other side. The end of the Bible says something about the salvation of God. Look at Revelation chapter 7 and verse 10. Revelation 7 verse 10. Crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I don't know that you could find truer words in all of Scripture. Salvation belongs to our God. And make no mistake, the speakers of this divine doxology here in Revelation chapter 7 verse 10, they are indeed worshiping by saying it. Look at the very next verse, verse 11. Everybody falls down and worships. One might dare to say that the concept of salvation, the salvation of mankind, is the key theme of the entire book that God has seen fit to give to us. How to get sinful man back to a holy, righteous, loving God. Salvation. How I must worship God because of His great salvation. All of us have read the fairy tales. Some of you with kids, especially little girls, you've all read these fairy tales where a prince rescues a princess from a dragon, from a tower, from a wicked stepmother. You know, the caveats are endless what the prince rescues the princess from. We've all read them. Those are cute stories for children. But I tell you what, we as Christians have lived an even greater reality. The prince rescues the princess. Well, you know what's happened to us as Christians? We have been rescued from a prince. 
What are you talking about, David? We have been rescued from a prince. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. The prince of the power of the air. Allah Satan, Allah the devil, that great serpent, the deceiver of old. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. We've been rescued from a prince by a lamb. Greatest story ever told. Revelation 7.10. Rescued from a prince by a lamb. The lamb of God. Salvation. Let's make this point, this point personal now. We all know Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, but God demonstrated His own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You consider the point of salvation as a motivation for your worship. Change the us to me. Romans 5.8, there's nothing unbiblical or anti-scriptural about reading it this way because I am a part of the us here. Change it to me, but God demonstrates His own love for me in that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Salvation's personal. You better believe that I will worship the Lord, that I will sing praise to the Lamb because of the salvation that I have in God and through Christ. Number two, look at verse 24. Verse 24, tell of His glory among the nations, His wonderful deeds among all the peoples. If you're taking notes, I'd mark the phrase, His wonderful deeds. Why do I worship? Let me count the ways. His wonderful deeds. The wonderful deeds of the Lord are many. They're many. Look at Psalm 40 verse 5. It says this exact same thing. Many, Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done. The wonderful deeds of God are many. But they are also marvelous. The words of the de- the word or deeds of God are marvelous. Psalm ninety two and verse five says, "How great or how marvelous are your works, O Lord! Many and marvelous are the works of the God that we worship." Consider with me just a few of the physical, wonderful deeds that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, John chapter one, did as He was on the earth. You need some motivations to worship. Think about the wonderful deeds done by the God that we are worshiping. Jesus. He healed the blind. John chapter 9. He made the lame walk. John chapter 5. He cleansed the lepers. John chapter, Luke chapter 17. Excuse me. He made the deaf hear. Mark chapter 7. He raised the dead. Lazarus. John chapter 11. He preached the gospel, Luke chapter 4 and verse 44. Just a few, just a snapshot of some of the marvelous and many deeds done by the Lord. Jesus himself uses these wonderful deeds in his reply to that question asked by his cousin, John the baptizer, as he's facing death as a martyr. Herod's sword's about to kill him, and John sends word to the Lord in Matthew chapter 11, 1 through 6, by way of one of his disciples, and he asks this question, are you the Messiah or should we look for another? And Jesus doesn't answer him explicitly. Jesus doesn't say, go tell John, yes I am. No. Jesus cites the many and the marvelous deeds that he has done. He says, go tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. 
Those words, just those words, were enough for John. John could go to his grave in full assurance of who Jesus Christ was. Those words, just those words, would be enough for you and for me today. But we have so much more. As you study the Word of God, it is hard not to find an overabundance of the wonderful deeds done by the Father, by Christ, to worship them for. Remember the wonderful deeds whenever your worship grows weak and stale. Number three. Number three, look at verse 25. 1 Chronicles 16, 25. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. There's a repeated word in this passage. The summation of the verse. To put it simply, I worship the Lord, I worship God because He is great. He is great. That's an overused word. We use it too much and we don't really give significance to it whenever we see it in a context like this. We sing songs extolling the greatness of God. How great thou art. Great is thy faithfulness. To God be the glory. Great things he has done. On and on we could go. But stop and think just for a moment how great the God that we are worshiping right now truly is. Think about all of the various attributes of the God that we are worshiping right now. Sit down sometime, take your Bible out, take a pen and a piece of paper down, and consider all of the attributes of God. His grace, His justice, His love, His mercy, His faithfulness, His holiness, His unchangeableness. Make a list. Write down passages that correspond, and then go back and look through that list and find me one attribute that is not totally and completely and perfectly great. You can't. And neither can I. Look at Psalm 145 verse 3. Psalm 145 verse 3 says, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Adam, we can try. We can dedicate the rest of our lives to digging into the greatness of God, but we're not going to scratch the surface. It's unsearchable. I worship God because He is great. I fear sometimes that the greatness of the God that we claim to love and worship has largely been forgotten. Even by well-meaning Christians. Maybe even by one or two of us this morning sitting here listening. May this never be the case with us. The God that we serve is great. May the greatness of our God, the God that we worship, be realized. May it be ever so much more than that quaint and colloquial prayer of years gone by. God is great, God is good, and we thank Him for our food. That doesn't do service to the God that we serve, whose greatness is unsearchable. May we search out His greatness as best, finite, weak, frail human minds can. May we truly worship Him because of it. May we worship the Lord with and like the psalmist did in Psalm 40, 16. He says, May all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. Number four, 1 Chronicles 16, verse 26. For all of the gods of the peoples are idols. 
But the Lord made the heavens. In a nutshell, a one word summation of this verse in my estimation would be supremacy. The supremacy of God compared to all the gods of the peoples. High above all those false gods, all those fake imposters, Jehovah's not even to be mentioned in the same breath as such. I worship the supreme being. I worship the true God. I worship the God from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 90 verse 2. I worship a being who is higher even than angelic beings. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4. Almighty God always has and has always demanded His rightful position of supremacy. It's His. Nobody else's. All the way back in the Old Testament... We see His supremacy clearly stated before His chosen people, Israel of old. In the very first of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. The New American Standard reads, You shall have no other gods before Me. God supreme, nobody comes before the supreme being. God alone, no other gods before Me. Only one can reign supreme. There's no second place winner. God doesn't play second fiddle to anybody. It's His and His alone. I've got to remember that whenever I worship. I've got to remember that the Lord God, omnipotent, supreme, reigns. Revelation 19, verse 6. But if you're still in Exodus, we read verse 3, drop down to verse 23. Exodus chapter 20, verse 23. No gods before. The New American Standard in Exodus 20, verse 23 says, You shall not make other gods besides me. No gods to be with me. No gods before, no gods alongside. Only one supreme and nobody else is even in the picture. Why do I worship? Because I'm worshiping a God who stands alone in His supremacy. A place that's rightfully His and that nobody else can even attempt to touch. Number five, 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 27. Why do I worship? Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. We'll consider the word majesty briefly from this passage. Majesty is so much more than just a fancy title that our English friends across the pond use to address royalty. Majesty carries so much more weight than just that. It's an inherent attribute of the true king that we serve. Majesty. I've got to remember this fact whenever I worship that king. Majesty defined. Sovereign power. Authority and dignity. The majesty of God, the majesty of the king that we are worshiping right now is both glorious, but it's also terrifying. Whenever you stand before a supreme being, the majesty is both glorious and terrifying. They're two sides of the same coin. It's glorious. Look at Psalm 145, verse 5. It says, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works will I meditate. I'm going to focus and think about the glorious splendor of God's majesty. The majesty of God is glorious. You know why? Because you and I have submitted to the kingship of the Lord. That's why it's glorious for us. We're under His authority, fully subject to everything that He demands. 
but it's also terrifying. There will come a day when the majesty of God will be a terrifying thing to behold. Isaiah chapter 2, three times in just that one chapter, verse 10, verse 19, and verse 21, we see the same phrase used. It is, from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. Isaiah is driving a point home with a repeated phrase in Isaiah 2. God's majesty is going to be terrible. Why? It's going to be terrifying to people who have not made themselves subject to the king's rule. When we worship, may we consider the words of Psalm 148 in regard to the majesty of God. Incidentally, at least two of our most well-known and most beloved hymns, biblical hymns, come straight out of Psalm 148. Praise the Lord, ye heavens adore Him. Hallelujah, praise Jehovah. Comes from this passage. We're singing God's word back to Him in those hymns. Psalm 148 verse 13, the ESV translation says, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above the heaven and the earth. Why do I worship? Because of the majesty of the King that I serve. Next, number 6, verse 28. Ascribe to the Lord, ye families of peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory glory. And strength. We're going to key in on those last two attributes mentioned in this passage. Strength and glory. Glory and strength. I worship the Lord because He is the King of glory and strength. Again, keep your place in 1 Chronicles 16. Look at Psalm 24, 7-10. Psalm 24, 7-10. The psalmist says something about the Lord's glory and strength in this beautiful passage. We would do well to mark it, to go back and study it further. Psalm 24, 7 begins, Lift up your heads, you gates, and be lifted up, you ancient doors. The King of glory may come in. In verse 8, the psalmist asks a wonderful and a poignant question. Who is the King of glory? But we don't have a cliffhanger ending here. The question is answered in the very next verse. The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle, lift up your heads, you gates, and lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. But then look at verse 10. The question's asked again. Who is the King of glory? Again, not a rhetorical question, but an answer is given to us in the very next breath. The Lord of armies, He is the King of glory. Why do I worship? Because of the Lord and His glory and strength. Twice in this passage, David asks and he answers the question, Who is the Lord of glory? This is a question that you and that I must ask ourselves each and every time we assemble, each and every time we worship individually. Who is the Lord of glory? The ultimate answer that we will give in asking this question ourselves is the same answer that the psalmist did, the Lord. But when we consider His Word and all that it says about His glory and His strength, the subpoints, if you will, are never-ending. We can find so many motivations to worship based on the Lord's glory and strength. Why do I worship? I worship because in doing so, I am coming into the very presence of the King of glory. Do you have a hard time comprehending the glory of the Lord? I do. 
Welcome to the club. I think we're going to make t-shirts one of these days. If you have a hard time comprehending the glory of the Lord, good. I'd encourage you to go back and do a study on that phrase in Scripture, the glory of the Lord. It occurs some 38 times, primarily in the Old Testament, but there are at least three New Testament references of that phrase. We can learn a lot about the King of glory and strength by studying the phrase, the glory of the Lord. I worship because I have a closeness with the glory of the Lord and with His strength that our friends under the old law could only dream about. That's a motivation for me to worship. I've got a closeness with this Lord of glory. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But we all... With unveiled faces, looking in a mirror at the glory of the Lord. There's one time in the New Testament that phrase occurs. And being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. I've got a closeness with this Lord of glory that our friends under the old covenant could only dream about. Let's key in on a specific point in this passage. The idea of a veiled face or an unveiled face. You remember all the way back in Exodus chapter 34, 29 through about 35, Moses comes down after meeting with God and he veils his face. It wasn't because the glory was overwhelming. It was because the glory was already waning from the old law. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13 tells me this. I'm not making it up. Moses veils his face because the glory is already departing. It was temporary. The glory of the place that we have as children of the king is not waning. It is not passing away. It is not declining in any way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, as the king returns, it will only increase eternally. Why do I worship? Because of the Lord of glory and strength. And because of the glory and the strength that I can have through Him as His child. That's a motivation to worship. Number 7, look at verse 29, 1 Chronicles 16. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due, mark that word, underline it, circle it, exclamation point. Do His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in holy attire. Why do I worship? Because I am just giving God His due. We render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. Mark chapter 12 and verse 17. Word spoken by our Lord. We pay taxes to a government. But let me tell you something. That government takes that money because they're in a position of authority. But they do not necessarily deserve it. The same cannot be said of our true king. He inherently deserves abundantly more than I even have the ability to give him. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. I can't give him enough to pay him his due. The Lord is due glory. Psalm 96 and verse 8. 
The Lord is due praise. Psalm 29 and verse 2. The Lord is due thankfulness. Thanksgiving. Psalm 7 verse 17. The Lord is due fear and respect. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 7. God is due all of these things. And scripture uses that word incidentally in each of those passages. God is due this simply for being who he is. The payment, if we can call it that, quote unquote, that I render to my king in worship is the very least that I can give. But it is the very best that I have to offer. I'm not even coming close to giving God his due. It's the least I can give him, but it's the best that I have to offer. I present myself a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is my spiritual act of worship. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. In worship, I give the best that I have to a king who is due exceedingly, abundantly more. Number 8. 1 Chronicles 16 and verse 30. We're almost there, Carl. Stay with me. we got one more after this. Tremble before Him, all the earth. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. From making the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, Acts chapter 14 and verse 15, to continuing to give rain from heaven in fruitful season, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Acts chapter 14, verse 17, The Lord has established and the Lord sustains it all. He established and sustains the world. Flip over to Psalm chapter 8. And we won't read it all for the sake of time, but it's a beautiful psalm. Look at Psalm 8 and verse 3. And we need to have the same mindset that the psalmist did, that David did, whenever he beheld what the Lord upholds. Verse 3, when I consider the wonderful works of your hands, David's beholding all of these things that God has done. The stars, the heavens, the celestial bodies. What does he do? Look at verse 9. He praises and worships. When I behold what the Lord upholds, may I do the same thing that David did in Psalm 8. May I praise and worship Him because of it. Number 9, finally, verse 31. Let the heavens be joyful, let the earth rejoice, and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Those last three words are what we need to key in on for a motivation for worship. Why do I worship? Because the Lord reigns. Every time that I come before the Lord, I need to add my voice to that wonderful hallelujah chorus from Revelation 19 and verse 6. Do you remember Revelation 19 verse 6? Then I heard a sound like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And what was it saying? Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. When I worship, I add my voice to that hallelujah chorus. Hallelujah, for the Lord God Omnipotent, the Lord God Almighty, He reigns. He is still on the throne. He is still in control. He is still in power. He is still the King. And because He is still all of these things, I can be still and know that He is God. Psalm 46 and verse 10. 
Because he reigns, the earth can rejoice. Psalm 97 verse 1. Because he reigns, I can declare that among the nations. Psalm 96.10. Because he reigns, I can endure, I can overcome, and I can reign with him. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12. Because he reigns, I can and I must worship him for that reason. He reigns. In conclusion, why do I worship? Nine reasons briefly looked at. Nine reasons that merit exponentially more study, thought, prayer, and worship from us as individuals from just one passage in Scripture. When we think about the God of the book, it's hard not to worship Him. I saw written once the phrase, when I worship... I would rather my heart be without words than my words be without heart. When I worship, I would rather my heart be without words than my words be without heart. When we behold the many reasons why we worship God, it ought to leave us speechless. I can't say enough good things about Him. My heart is without words. But my words are not without heart. May the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of the Lord, our rock and redeemer. Psalm 19, verse 14. This morning, if you're not a Christian, your worship to the Lord is not what it should be. The reason that it is not what it should be is because you are not in a relationship with Him. The Lord desires that relationship. God loves each and every person. He sent Christ to die for every person. He wants you. He wants your soul to be with Him forever. We've got a standard for salvation that is set forth. It's set forth by the very God that we seek to worship. He has told me what I must do to become right with Him He's provided the blood of Christ. And through faith and repentance and baptism, I can put on Christ. Galatians 3.27 I can enter into a relationship through the avenue that He has established. Then my worship can be right before Him. If you are a Christian, perhaps your worship to the Lord has grown stale and routine. Maybe you're in a funk when it comes to worshiping God. We've all been there. We'll all be there again. Maybe you're honoring Him with your lips, but your heart is somewhere else. Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. Won't you change that now? Repent. Turn, Acts 3.19. Change the way that you're living. Dedicate yourself anew. Consider the myriad of motivations that we have to worship the God who loves us so much and who we love so much. Dedicate yourself again. This morning, if you have any needs, if you need to put on the Lord in baptism, if you'd like the prayers of the congregation, we'd be happy to do so with you and for you now as we stand and while we sing.